0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew five, chapter six. Uh, Matthew chapter five. If you don't, you can look in your phone or raise your hand. We might be able to find you a Bible. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob, and I'm so glad you're here today. Hear the word of God, Matthew five. Jesus says, "You are the light, or you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again?" It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bull. Instead, they put it out on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven." God, this is your word, and it's good. I pray that you would help us to hear it as you meant it and for it to change us. Amen. Well, these verses may sound familiar to you. Uh, They may not, but that's all right. They are familiar to me, but as I read and studied and reflected and prayed over the last week or two, I realized that I understood very little about what Jesus was saying. Part of the reason that I think we struggle with I struggled with understanding this is because it's familiar and because salt and light were so commonly used metaphors in the ancient world. And Jesus is reminding his people who they already are. You are salt and you are light. So we've been in this series where we've been talking about who do we think we are. We've been called beloved ambassadors and Last week, we talked about being masterpieces of God. In each of these things, it's an identity that God is offering us. He is giving it to us. It's not something we have to earn. So in the same way, your salt and your light is an identity that Jesus is offering. You don't have to perform your way to this identity. It's who God is already calling his followers to be. Now, throughout history, salt was used for a variety of functions and purposes and valued for lots of things. I mean, remember when salt was first discovered, there weren't refrigerators, so salt was often used for preserving. It was used for flavoring. It was used in healing, and it was even used in destroying. The Dead Sea is called such because of the amount of salt in that that body of water is really it's, it's too much salt for anything to thrive in. So salt is used for all these different things. And the first difficulty is discovering what Jesus actually meant when he says that we're the salt of the earth. The phrase salt of the earth today or for the last 100 or 200 years means that if you are a salt of the earth person, then you are a fundamentally good person and you're a reliable part of society. So it's a good thing for you to be called salt of the earth. But that's not actually at all what it meant when Jesus was talking about it. And the second difficulty uh, comes to us from this understanding that salt actually couldn't lose its saltiness. To be salt was to have this chemical substance, and you can't change the compound. And so the lostness of salt was something that didn't happen. Genuine salt doesn't lose its flavor. So that adds a complication to what Jesus meant. And the final hurdle we have to consider is that we have to look at where Jesus used this word salt any other times. So the Gospels of Mark and Luke use this phrase as well, but it's in the same context of when Jesus was using it right here in these verses we read. And the only other time I believe that he uses the word salt or saltiness as this concept is when he hints at it in Luke 17. And he's talking about the destruction of Sodom and comparing it to the coming of the kingdom of God. So if you've been able to hang with me through all that, Jesus is trying to say, Here is a hint at what it means to be salt of the earth. In Luke 17, Jesus is saying, It was the same as in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, and planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like that when the Son of Man returns and is revealed. In that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside, should go down to get them. And likewise, no one who is out in the field should go back in the house to get anything. Remember Lot's wife. Now, maybe you don't know Lot's wife. That's okay if you don't know Lot's wife. Lot's uh, Lot's wife was married to Lot, but before she was married to Lot, Lot was just a guy that, a nephew of Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah were the first people that God called Out of one place, this place called Ur in the region of Babylon. Babylon is generally bad. Don't worship God there. And God calls them out at 75 and 65 years old to go and be a people that He is gonna bless so that they may bless the world. And Abraham and Sarah bring Lot, their nephew. Now, if you read the story that's found in Genesis, you find out that Lot is more of a problem than a help to Abraham. He has to rescue him several times. He's generally causing him headaches and he's not blessing these people. But the reason that he probably brought Lot was because God said that he was going to give him many descendants and Abraham had none. So Lot was his just in case God doesn't come through. Now I know we wouldn't possibly ever do that, right? No, we never put insurance policies out just in case God doesn't come through. But it's actually when Abraham... Let's Lot go that Abraham starts to see not only what he's supposed to do but who God has made him to be. Lot goes and settles in a wicked, evil place and there is when we're introduced to Lot having a wife and daughter. So presumably Lot goes to this wicked place called Sodom and he finds a wife and he has these daughters and he lives in this place. He might be an influence there. We're not sure. We just know that The Lord sends messengers to rescue Lot and his family from that place. And in Genesis 19, it tells us that they say, you've got to get out. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, one of these messengers from God said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. So Lot, his wife, and his daughters leave this place. Lot tries to convince the, the men who are going to be pledged to marry his daughters that they should leave too. And they decide, no, we don't want to go. You're crazy. And so they start running away. And the angel says that do not stop until you get there. And it's a place that scholars believe is about 10 miles away. The angels come at dawn. So it's like uh, Murder, She Wrote. Remember that show? Or NCIS, you know, or or Psych. It's, it's a mystery detective to figure this out. So The messengers come at dawn with this message and say, leave this place. And fire and sulfur and destruction don't happen until the sun is very high. So likely four or five hours have passed. Plenty of time to get at least 10 miles away, right? But then there's this strange verse at the end of that where they run to this place, and the text says that Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I've always heard that, and actually people have told me that, that the, Lot's, life, Lot's wife looked back and got vaporized because she tried to sneak a peek at the awesome holiness of God. Anybody else heard that before? No? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. And I always thought in the back of my mind that, like, that seems a little harsh. Like, that, I mean, God's holy, but that he would... That he would vaporize someone just because they looked back? Well, the text doesn't actually support that. Now, first, um, if you read the details, the messengers come at dawn. They say they're not going to destroy until the sun's high. And if the people that came to this place, they ran to this place called Zoar... Anybody on those city walls that looked back at Sodom would have been able to see the destruction, and no one else dies from that, and the text doesn't say anything about that. And finally, the angel gives three commands. Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop before reaching your destination. Essentially, these form a... Or don't stop anywhere in the plain. And essentially, these form a sequence. The angel says, get out of here now, don't turn back and don't stop before you get to the destination. So the way Jesus describes it in John 17, because there is a point to this nice little detour, is that the people of Jesus' day were doing very similar things to the people in Sodom's day. And, it's, and the things Jesus describes aren't particularly wicked. He says that the people were eating and drinking, They were buying and selling, and they were planting and building. Well, whether you're an industrialized nation or not, those are all things you need to do to live. See, the people in Jesus' day and the people in Sodom's day don't think these things are wrong, and inherently, they're not wrong. So why, then, does she turn into this pillar of salt? Well, I think the evil in it, if you will, the evil, if you will, is that... These activities aren't wrong. It's that these activities have actually captured Lot's wife's attention so much that she decides to go back to Sodom. I can imagine her saying, as they're running away, and she turns back, she starts remembering the home that they left, the possessions that they left, the life that they left, the buying and selling and planting and building and the eating and drinking. And she says, Lot, that's, this is crazy. You've lost your mind. How do you even know that these messengers were from God? You've just left our home and our life for what? To, to run away and figure out, start over at our age? No, no, no. I'm going back, I'm going to go back, and you, you can come and find me whenever, whenever you come to your senses. But I'm, I'm out of here. Now, so the reason, if that's true, then the reason that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt is because she returned to the city. She wanted to have this life there. Those activities had so captured her attention that she couldn't hear and follow God. That would actually align pretty well with what Jesus says about when the kingdom, when the Son of Man comes, the person on the roof shouldn't go back in the house to get things. And the people that are out in the field, which would essentially be at work, that the people who are at work shouldn't return to their home and pack things up. That they should be ready to go. That the the life we live, whether... It's eating and drinking or buying or selling or planting or building that these activities would be things we engage in but wouldn't so capture our attention that we would miss hearing and following God. That's what it means to be salt. The rabbis even say that salt is a symbol for wisdom. And so to lose your saltiness, if you will, would be to lose your wisdom. It would be to know things and then choose to not do them. I know I'm supposed to floss. I don't do it every day. Uh, Those vegetables, I know they're healthy, but sometimes I sneak through the drive-thru and order the mozzarella sticks, which are not good for you. No. And if you immediately think, well, then if I have to be salt means to be wise and I'm not wise, remember what James 1 says. Any of you that lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So for you to take on this identity as being salt would be to ask God where you need wisdom. God, where do I need wisdom? And maybe asking the Holy Spirit, are there any activities in my life that are keeping me from hearing and following God? So I just invite you to ask the Holy Spirit... God, what activities, or what activities are in my life that are, are hindering me from hearing and following you? So the text goes on and says, you are light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it on a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So uh, we got to have two days in the last week that had sunshine. Did you feel it? I mean, there was warmth too, but sunshine? I mean, I like winter and I love snow and I actually don't mind the cold, but the thing I dread is the darkness of winter. I don't know about you, but I just, the days where the sun's out, I get like three times as much done as the days that are cloudy. If you see me as your pastor on the days that are cloudy, it's I mean, Jesus needs to show up, because otherwise I'm like, well, sorry. Like, that's just how it is, I guess. I, I, I don't like it, but that's, that's the challenge of darkness. Now, that's my feelings associated with darkness, but I want to hear from you. So this is when the sounds of the symphony are greater than the sounds of the soul. So what feelings do you get that you think are associated with darkness, what feelings are associated with darkness? Fear. Fear. Alone. Alone. Ooh, that's good. Depression. Fatigue. Anger. Right? That's what you said? Anger? Yeah. Sadness? Loss? Ooh, those are good too. Oh, not enough. You want to say more about that? No? <laughs> I'm not enough. I think I can. I think I can get there. Yeah. Mischief. Mm, yeah, I'm remembering things that my high school girlfriend's mom said about darkness. Nothing good ever happens after midnight. <laughs> Maybe for you. That was before Jesus. All right. So we'll go on to a new question. I'll have some explaining to do. Uh, what happens when you try to walk in the dark, especially in an unfamiliar place? Stumble, Stumble bump into things. More fear. Could be dangerous. It could be dangerous. Yeah, you reach out and you feel nothing. So you don't know where you are. You might not know where you're going. You want to look for light. If you've ever been in a cave, there is, I mean, utter darkness is, there is no light. It's utterly dark and a whole new world of things. Now, remember, the people that are first hearing this and the people that are first reading this, they don't have electricity or electronic devices. The only light they have is from the sun. And from a lamp, either a candle or an oil lamp. Those are the only, maybe some torches, but those are the only sources of light these people have. They have to get most of their work done during the day because it's really tough to hold an oil lamp and do your work. So this would have been, I mean, just an important idea for them, to be the light of the world. And Jesus compares it to, um, can you put the verses back up? There's 14 and 15. Notice what Jesus compares it to. A town that's on a hill, and he says that can't be hidden, and a lamp on a stand, because he wouldn't put a lamp under a bowl. I mean, but these seem obvious, so why the comparison? Well, the first time the word lampstand is used in the Bible is actually in the second book. It's in Exodus, and it's when God is giving the, the Israelites, who he's rescued from Egypt, He's giving them instructions about building a place where he will dwell. It's this tabernacle. It's like a portable worship center, kind of like we come in and we set up here and we meet together. Well, that's essentially what the tabernacle was, except for them to understand the holiness of God, they needed to not just make a common place. They needed to make a holy place and a most holy place. And the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was and God's presence would be there. That was one source of light. And then in the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. And one of them was this lampstand. It's the only other piece of furniture that would give light. And so in this, God makes very specific specifications to how these things would be built, what material to use, where it would be placed, and what its purpose was. And In Exodus 35, we see that the lampstands, that is for light, with his accessories, lamps and oil for light. So, in case you're not sure what the purpose of the lampstand is, it's for light. Now, it's beautiful, it's ornate. Uh, Some people, some scholars think that it was a symbol of the tree of life, but essentially, it was less about symbol and more about purpose. It was situated directly across from this one of the other pieces, this table called the bread the table of the presence or the table of the showbread. This was a golden table directly across that table had 12 loaves of bread baked every sabbath that were laid out for God and then after the week the priests would get them they were usually seasoned with salt ironically and they were a symbol of God's provision and goodness and presence in the wilderness for the 12 tribes of Israel. So think about this. Of the three things that are going to be there, one is light, and its purpose is to simply light up the very object that represents God's goodness and presence in the world. Are you getting it? Are you seeing it? The priest's primary job, one of their primary jobs was to make sure that the light never went out so it would continue to shine on God's presence and goodness. This was the same, the same bread that Jesus picked up on the Passover, on the Last Supper, and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. This is my presence and goodness. Jesus, the very embodiment of God's presence and goodness, and he tells us what the function of the light is, is to light up what represents God's presence and goodness. God called the people of Israel to be that presence and light in the world. Isaiah tells us, that he would make Israel a light to the nations for the Gentiles, that, their sal- that this salvation of God would reach the ends of the earth. Jesus uh, calls John, the baptizer and the prophet, a bright lamp. In John 5, John was a lamp that burned bright and gave light, and for a chime, you chose to enjoy that light. And then in the last book, uh, one of Jesus' lifelong disciples' students, John, in Revelation, has this wild vision of who Jesus is. And in that wild vision, Jesus explains to him this, the mystery, some of the mystery of what he saw. He says, The seven stars that you saw in my right hand are the seven golden lampstands and the se- are, are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are for the seven churches. So, To be light of the world then is to be the church. It's to shine brightly who Jesus is. God's goodness and provision and presence in the world. To be salt is to be preserving and to be wise and to be light is to illuminate who God is in the world for all to see. Light and salt engage and influence and bless the things around it. Just like light is utterly different than darkness, when we are living as salt and light, our influence will be obvious and evident. We'll radiate God's goodness and presence in the world. We'll positively influence society no matter where we are or how dark it is. And you might think, well, wait, wait. I'm one person. I can't make a difference. Or we're a small church. Really, can we make a difference? That's all God has ever used Think about Abraham and Sarah. They're two people who travel across the known world. They live as resident aliens, and yet they bless the people around them, and the people around them continue to discover more of who God is. They don't do it perfect, but they do do it with God. God taught the people in the wilderness to be salt and light. Even when God sent them into exile, he tells them to engage, influence, and bless the people around them. In Jeremiah 29, it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city that I have carried you into exile, and pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. This is who God says we are. And when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Jesus says, my prayer is not to take my followers out of this world, but to protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world, he tells his father, and he says, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. I, as you have sent me into the world, God, I am sending them. This is who we are. This is who God has always made us to be. Think about Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham, some of the people in the last 100 years that have been one person who've made a radical difference in the world. The power of God in a small group of people can change the world. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's why God called restoration into existence to be a blessing to the world around us. We want to actually have the city notice and miss us if we weren't here. So we don't need to hide out or hope for heaven Heaven will come, Jesus will come back, but we can engage and influence and bless the world. We can be wisdom, and we can be brilliant light in the world for all to see and understand who God is. And after we celebrate communion in just a moment, and we end the worship service, you're invited to join us in the auditorium room across the hall and hear just a brief 30-minute vision update from our leadership team. We'll review what we talked about in June and then give progress reports on where we've seen God at work. Anybody can come. You don't have to be a member to join us for that and um, it will be short. So as we think about what it means to be salt and light, we actually have some examples from the last year. We decided in April of last year to come here for a short time. We talked about how worship is more than singing. Then we went across... The road, And we worked out with Westview Elementary School how we could uh, work with them on cleaning and cultivating their, their garden, anything they needed. And we got to bless them. We got to do this good deed. They said thank you, but even more than thank you, they acknowledged that there's a God in heaven. That we were not just doing this out of ourselves. And uh, there are 30 kids at Westview Elementary School who every Friday during the school year go home with a full backpack of food because you have participated in the mission of restoration, and we have given over $5,000 to the Sheridan Story so that these kids can have food, so that they cannot be hungry on the weekends and come back starving on Monday. They can actually learn and be a part of class. You've been a part of that. And just this December we did this Armful of Love event where we buy gifts for families in need. And we put together, uh, we wrap them, we, they ask the families, we work with 360 Communities who works with the families to give specific lists of gifts. And we had so many people participate that we actually had to go back for an extra family and an extra family. And one of those families happened to... Having to send a note because uh, they heard that our church had sponsored them, and this is what it means to be salt and light to the congregation of Restoration Covenant Church. It is with heartfelt thanks that I write this letter to you. We are taken with your kindness and generosity. It is so comforting to know that, despite the stress and chaos going on in the world, that there are such good people around us. We are so thankful for the time, money, and attention to detail that all of you provided. It is especially hard to parent at Christmas time and know your kids are hoping to have a merry holiday and that you know that you can't afford anything. And this year, the kids were so excited, and it's all because of you. We recognize and appreciate every part of the process, from collecting donations to shopping and wrapping each gift. As we opened our gifts, we were thinking of you and reflecting on your goodwill. It is our wish that our children will never forget this and will keep it as a reminder to help others who are less fortunate that they may encounter God in their lives. Thank you for providing not only for our kids but for us as well. We are so grateful for all the gifts you've given. You've created a truly bright spot in what has been a very difficult couple of years. You are angels, each and every one of you. Family 7707, blessings to you. Jesus says, not that we will receive praise, but that the Father in heaven will receive praise and glory because people see your good deeds. Where do you need wisdom? Where do you simply need to be who God has called you to be? He's called you to bear light to be light in a dark place. Because when you live as his light, others will gravitate toward it. Just like we talked about when we're in the dark, we look for light. There is a world around us that is looking for light. Shine bright. Maybe you need to get in a small group, get on a ministry team, or just pray for your neighbors. But not out of behavior out of identity, out of who you are. Would you pray with me? God, we know that we can't live as salt and light without your Holy Spirit in us. That Jesus, unless you change our heart, we won't be shining anything that's of you. We will be shining us. So God, no matter where we are with you, no matter how much we've been at church, we just recognize that you are the one that the scripture calls the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who lived and the one who died for us. God, and we give ourselves to you. We don't want to give ourselves to you on our behavior. We want to give ourselves to you out of your gift of your son, who you love, who you sent, and who died and rose for us. God, may we partake in communion today as your children, as dearly loved people, that any of us that have said yes to you can come to your table and can take the body and blood, God, this symbol of your goodness and presence in the world. Then may we live as your goodness and presence in the world. Speak to us, God. We love you. Amen.